in this section now, specifically 24 through 37, Jesus is still responding to the original question of the disciples about the signs which will accompany the destruction of the temple. Okay, words, key words are really, really important and very helpful to us to figure out what is being talked about. Okay, he, they said, what will be the signs of these things? And what, and what we're going to demonstrate is that all too often, certain portions of Scripture are better understood if you simply Google that word. Right? He says a word, Google the word. Look at all the very varying definitions of it. Then you go into the ESV.org Bible app, and you type signs into the search bar. And it is quite interesting what comes out. Because what you'll find is that the things that he's talking about here, like signs, stars, these kinds of things, tribulations, it's not the only time those words are used. And part of this whole process here through the last couple of chapters of Mark is, is, is that I want us to study our Bibles differently, very differently than how we normally do it. Right? I, I'm, I'm not opposed to the idea that the, the most important thing is to simply read it. No doubt. Right? Deep diving into the Bible is actually pretty hard to do. It, it, right? Especially if you've got a bunch of little kids. Moms. So I'm not trying to pressure you. But we have different seasons in our lives. And if you're in a season where all it takes is an extra five minutes to simply Google the word sign or to look it up in ESV.org, I encourage you to do such a thing. If you have that kind of time, it bears a lot of fruit. And what it will help us do over time is teach us that Scripture helps us understand Scripture. This was one of the key ideas of the Reformation. Why are we looking outside of the Scripture to understand what it means? It's a good question. We're going to get into some of, some of how that works. Apparently, intercontinental ballistic missiles, the development of such a weapon, uh, helped a lot of people. It clarified the Olivet Discourse for a lot of people. We're going to get into that. I'm, not, I'm, I'm still not convinced, but we'll talk about it. Scripture interprets Scripture. And this is what Jesus is teaching them to do, right? Towards the end of his life, there's all these stories about Jesus explaining to them that the Old Testament has to do, is about him. And, and that's not something that he just does here and there. He's constantly doing it. And he's doing it through key words. He's, he's using a kind of language that they are very familiar with to teach them what, it, what, what the Old Testament is really about, which is him. In response to the disciples' question when these things will take place and the request for some indication that all these things are about to be accomplished, Jesus spoke of the complex of events which find their culmination in the devastation of Judea and the demolition of the temple. I think, I think that point at least is clear. He concludes his remarks with the admonition, take care, I have told you beforehand all things. That's how we ended last week. He told us, this is, I've told you about all things. Now, now, because he's told us all things, he's going to end with a very interesting phrase this week, and that is, stay awake. Stay awake. Jesus is speaking to his disciples who are intimately familiar with the most obscure details of the Old Testament. They really are. Uh, the problem is they don't understand it. I can't fault them for not knowing the text. They actually know the text very well. The problem that we've seen is that they don't come within 100 miles, generally speaking, of what the text actually means. Biblical imagery and forms of expression had formed these, his disciples. It had formed their culture. It informed their vocabulary, their environment, from early infancy all the way until they're sitting there with Jesus Christ. 
There is a language of prophecy. Okay? Now, nobody went and... and <laughs> there's no Old Testament prophet who said, hey, I'm going to write a key like, like you do for a map, and I'm going to write out all the words. But if you go and you read Daniel and you read Ezekiel, what you will find is there are certain things that pop up a lot. And they are difficult to understand, right? Have you guys ever read them and they're like, uh, 70 weeks and then half of 70 weeks and then seven more weeks and 70 weeks plus seven divided by half, one half and... I'm like, I don't, I don't do math. I just don't. So, I mean, anytime I read stuff like that, I just gla- my eyes glaze over. But if you, if you read all of it, what you come to find out is that there, are, there is a vocabulary to prophecy. If you're going to be a, a prophet, there is certain language that you use. As Jesus foretold the, com- the complete end of the Old Covenant system, which was, in a sense, the end of the world for the people who were listening to him, he spoke of it as, is, as any of the Old Testament prophets would have, in the stirring language of covenant judgment. You know those little tiny books in the Bible, right? After David, all the cool stuff about David, and you get to the Psalms and the Proverbs, and then there's like a lot of really confusing stuff, and then there's these little tiny books that nobody can ever remember the name of, like Habakkuk. Right? And though, if you go and you read those little tiny books... Those prophets use a very particular language. And and Jesus knew that language, and his hearers knew that language. The problem is we don't. We don't at all. Uh, Like I've said before, we we take the parts of the Olivet Discourse that are literal and make them metaphorical, and the parts that are metaphorical and make them literal, right? So the stars falling out of the heavens is is, is supposed to be really something that happens, whereas the word generation is just a metaphor. But the opposite is true. And and I think the reason that we do this is because we just don't know the Old Testament. And generally speaking, when we try to understand the the New Testament or the Old Testament, we don't use the Bible to do so. We look outside of it. Right? What did I tell you at the very start of this? Google. I started with Google. Now, why do you think I did that? Because that's what we all do. I'm making a point. Right? The first thing I think of is Google the Word. (laughs) That's not in the Bible, though. And we, we have to get over this knee-jerk reaction to go looking in the world for answers right, to help us understand something that is not of this world. All right. So here, here, here we're now going to jump into this with both feet. Jesus is going to say a lot of really, really interesting things that are very difficult to understand. And what we're going to do is untwist and tie them and try to comprehend what they mean. Mark Chapter 13, verses 24 through, 30, uh, 24 through 27 is what I'm going to read now. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and, when they will, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, at the end of the tribulation that Jesus explained last week, when people are being handed over to judges and being stabbed in the back by family members, being persecuted, Jesus says that the universe will collapse in on itself. The light of the sun and the moon will be extinguished. The stars will literally fall out of the heavens. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think this ever actually occurred, right? 
I mean, Israel, that, that land that they're talking about where Jesus is standing, you can actually go and it's still there. Um, the last time <laughs> it wasn't cloudy at night and I looked into the sky, it was still full of stars. So what, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Right? And, th- and this is what confuses people. This is why people are waiting for this to still happen. Because he says it, and Jesus isn't a liar. He's not fooled. He's not fooling us. He's saying that this is going to happen. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> at least we begin with that. Everybody does actually expect for what he say- says to happen to happen. But because we don't understand the language that he's using, we're still trying to figure out what he means. But let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. And if you look there, it says this. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs, hmm. and for seasons, and for days, and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. There's a very interesting moment in Dawn Treader where the characters from this world go over to Narnia and they meet a star. And the star is talking to one of the little boys. And the little boys, I think it's uh, Diggory. Oh, no, it's not Diggory. It's the other one, the one nobody likes. Thank you, Eustace. And Eustace says, stars are just big balls of gas. And the star says, well, that's what they appear to be, but that's not what they are. So we know, right, because we live in a scientific age, we've actually sent satellites there. What is, what is Mars? It's a big rock. We're not sure if there's life on it. I hope not. Because, it, right, given everything we think about the life that's on there, it sounds pretty scary. But there is a difference between what things are, okay, and what they appear to be. Jesus on a cross does not appear to be a conquering king, but he is. And this is one of my favorite things about the Bible. What things are and how they appear are not the same. So a star in the sky is a sign of something, but of what? He put it there, right? We understand how it works. The moon's uh, gravitational pull makes waves go in and out. We travel around the sun or the sun travels around us. We're not going to get into that right now. And that changes the seasons, right? We go from summer to fall to winter to spring. We get it, right? We understand that part of it where it says these things are put into the heavens in order for us to have days and seasons. But what does it mean that they're signs? And then it's no wonder that Jesus is talking about the stars because he's talking about, he's telling the disciples, these are the signs that you will see when the end is coming. The sun and moon and the stars are signs which govern the world. They govern the world. They are, in a sense, the government of the natural, of the natural order. Later in Scripture, these heavenly lights are used metaphorically as signs of earthly authorities and governors. Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 through 11. Then Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. Okay, if you have a dream about, first off, kids, if you have a dream about your siblings bowing down to you, don't tell them. Okay, I'm just going to help you out right there. Okay, just keep that to yourself. <clears throat> then Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. 
But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So he has this dream that he is going to become so powerful that the sun and moon and stars all bow down to him. And his father and his brothers rightly interpret this like, you think the whole world is going to bow down to you? Who do you think you are? Right? I mean, if Lewis said that at the breakfast table, we would all think he's crazy. Lewis, where do you get off, buddy? You're the... I'd wait till you're a little bigger to start telling people things like that. The stars in Joseph's dream represent the authorities in his life. But Joseph becomes Pharaoh's chief magistrate, doesn't he? And what happens? We read in Genesis 42.6, Now Joseph was governor over the land. So if you're the governor of the most powerful empire in the world, you are what? The governor of the world. Right? What do they call the president of the United States? Whichever one it is. They call him the leader of the free world. Now why? Why? Because he can make a phone call and he can assassinate somebody sitting in a car on the other side of the world in about 10 minutes. Right? That, that's a lot of power. So Joseph is the leader in Egypt, and Egypt is the biggest, most powerful nation in the world, and this is what it says. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and his brothers came and bowed themselves down before him, and their faces were to the ground. His dream was full of signs. Not literal things, but signs, metaphors, poems. And he had to try to figure out, using the Bible, using the world that God created and how it's created, to figure out what those things meant. When God threatens to come against authorities and judgment, he uses collapsing universe terminology. Decreation terminology, it's called. The flood helps us understand this language. Remember, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 9-11, through 11, God separates the dry land from the waters, which he pools into seas. That is an act of creation. He separates. As an act of judgment, God decreates the world by letting the seas overrun their boundaries to cover the dry ground with a worldwide flood. So what God does when he's angry is he unmakes the world. He reverses the blessing of creation that he did at the start. Placing the sun, the moon, and the stars into the skies as rulers, used as metaphors for earthly authorities, the language of judgment and decreation language of those authorities would be to take them down from the skies or to darken them. Prophesying of the fall of Babylon in 539 BC, Isaiah wrote this, chapter 13, verses 9 through 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark as at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. He's going to snuff out this country. And the, and the metaphor for it is snuffing out their stars. Similarly, Isaiah later prophesied about the Edomites. Remember, the Edomites were those pesky neighbors of the Israelites who hated them because God hated them. And they would sneak over and pillage and, and rampage, go on a rampage every time Israel was being invaded by another country. They, they have a long-standing issue with Israel. But this is what it says in Isaiah 34, 4 of them. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. 
Oh, there's that fig tree again. The curse that's going to come upon them is going to be like leaves coming off of Israel, falling off of Israel. It's going to be so bad, it's going to be like Israel itself ceases to be fruitful. Amos said this of Samaria, which was also destroyed. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Now, hold on, wait a minute. What happened at the crucifixion? The, the sun itself went dark. This, and who is the son of righteousness? Right? Now, there, there again is the metaphor, because Jesus is called the son of righteousness. The sun is the biggest star in the sky, right? It's the one that rules the day. And he's referred to as the son of righteousness because he's the biggest star in the sky. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And on the day that he is being put to death, the sun itself goes dark. Ezekiel says the same thing about Egypt. When, when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. God does not intend for anyone to interpret these things literally. Now, I thought, I thought Josephus had recorded eyewitnesses who said they saw the stars falling out of the heavens. That's actually what one commentator said. And now, then I'm very confused. So I, I did the only thing any self-respecting scholar does. I'm not really a scholar, but I pretend. Is I went and looked at Josephus, right? Because I don't want to have some modern commentator tell me what he said. I want to see what he said. And what eyewitnesses saw were chariots of flame flying through the skies that the modern commentator said must be what he's referring to when he says these stars. Well, I'll maneuver you there. Chariots of fire. Does that sound familiar to anyone? There's this prophet named Elijah, and he's encircled by the enemies of God, and his assistant is with him, and his assistant is nervous because what they have is no sword and a donkey. And Elijah's like, it's fine, it's fine. Don't worry. And he says, all right, all right, all right. God, if you will, let him open his, eye, open his eyes so that he can see what I see. And they go outside, and there on the hills all around the enemies of God are chariots of fire, the legions of the Lord God. So <clears throat> no one saw stars falling out of the sky in 70 AD. However, <laughs> what they did see apparently were chariots of fire falling out of the sky. I, I would rather see stars falling out of the sky. Just, that's just me, though. This decreation language is crucial to understanding the gospel, which is more than good news for individual sinners. It is good news for individual sinners. But this is a, a global gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Right? People who, modern people who are Christians who are obsessed with Jesus the Savior are, say all about like Jesus is my savior. It's all about him saving me from my sins. It's all about his, his death and his, right? Maybe they'll include the resurrection. But what is his ascension all about? That's called the vindication of Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> he said, tear this temple down and I will build it again in three days. And what happens? He pops up out of the ground after three days. He says, I am one with God. And everyone, <laughs> and then he goes up on clouds into the heavens, and what does he do? He rules and reigns from the right hand of God. The ascension of Jesus Christ is something that we all need to know a great deal more about. There are four things 
in the life of Jesus Christ that we need to understand if we're going to understand the gospel. And that is his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Jesus is priest, prophet, and king. Christ as is the one who came in the name of the Father, was slain for his claims about his status as God's son, the Messiah. But the last word on the issue comes from heaven. Right? Do you think men in Rome in the first century had the last word on who Jesus is or isn't? No. Jesus is the son of righteousness, the center of a new solar system, the highest, biggest star, the highest authority in the cosmos represented as the biggest star in our sky. Jesus Christ is enthroned in heaven at the Father's right hand, ruling over the nations and bringing vengeance upon his enemies. Think of what he laid aside to become a man. Killing that man, he didn't stay dead and he took up what he had laid down. And that thought ought to terrify a great number of people. What he laid aside, he took up again. And I love it that he says that in John. I lay my life down because I can take it up again. Because he can take the earth up in his hands if he wants to, and he can drop it if he wants to. Right? He can take up his own life, or he can lay it down. He can take up your life, or lay it down. He has all authority in the heavens and on earth. Now... Crucial aspects of Christ's vindication are the ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What we have to understand is that all over the place in the New Testament, it's as if Jesus and the apostles think that Jesus is coming back right away. Have you ever noticed this? It's, everybody thinks like it's just around the corner. And, and what modern people have done, because I think partially they don't understand the Old Testament, is that they think Jesus is like, right? It's like he came once, we call that Christmas, and then he's going to come a second time. And in between, we don't really understand what's happening. <coughs> but if we go all the way back to Genesis, down to the incarnation, how often did Jesus come and visit his people? Uh, quite a bit, right? So why is it that now that he's the king of heaven and earth and he has a special people whose spirit dwells on them, why is it that we think he only comes twice? That seems weird to me, right? I mean... If you think about it, he comes at Pentecost. He comes to Saul. He comes in 70 AD. <coughs> I'm sorry. He comes, and he comes, and he comes, and he comes. Because he is the God with us. He's never far away from us. There is a bodily second coming. Okay, I want to make sure that everyone realizes I'm not a heretic. He is coming back that one final time. But between now and then, he's going to be visiting us quite a bit. In fact, every time one of you received the Holy Spirit, and were converted, that was a visitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> and there's this passage in Acts 2. Remember, Mark is, is recording Peter's words. And Peter on Pentecost explains a great deal of, of this, this time that we refer to um, of, from Pentecost to Holocaust between the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the destruction of the temple is this period that Joel talked about, that Peter talked about, and that's what he preached his very first sermon on. Now, why? Why would Peter, who just watched Jesus go up into heaven, who has seen what they have done to him, why is he, right? Have you ever thought about the sermon that he preaches? It's not hell, fire, and brimstone all, all the way, is it? It's very gracious, 
And, and here's my question. After the ascension, right, this is why we make gods that look like us. If anyone's ever confused about what the god you would create, if you could create a god, what would it look like? It would look like Zeus, right? And I'm the same way, because if I were Jesus and they had just put me to death, I would be up in heaven forming meteors like a Major League Baseball pitcher. I'd be like, there's Earth. Here we go, baby. One after another. Man, they're, they're not going to be able to hide anywhere. Right? The scars still itch on his hands. It's that fresh. And he goes into heavens and what does he do? Does he just come back and destroy the temple? They don't need it anymore, so why does he let it stand for 40 years? Why would he do that? This is a time in, 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 the, in the history a time in history that is very difficult for us to understand. Christ transferred the authority of who is watching over his vineyard from one group to another group. And he doesn't do it like a tantrum. He doesn't do it instantaneously. He does it like he always does it in his own way, in his own time. That is very difficult for us to understand. Because he doesn't do, the th- he doesn't do things the way we would do them. Why would he let Israel, the, the Jewish system, stand for five minutes after he made it back to heaven? This is, this is the quote from Joel. Okay, I'm going to quote Peter quoting Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, Jesus, shall be saved. Shall be saved from what? Now, I always thought he meant saved in the general sense of salvation. But what he's describing here is this period of time between Pentecost and Holocaust in which those who cry out to the Lord Jesus... Right when the stars start falling out of the skies, are going to be saved. Did it ever seem weird? It seemed always very strange to me that he's talking about the spirit coming, and then he's talking about he's talking this apocalyptic language. Right, and I don't I don't understand Pentecost where there's stars falling out of the sky. It doesn't say that, but no, what he's talking about is the first visitation of Jesus to the new keepers of the vineyard, and the second visitation of Jesus to the keepers the old keepers of the vineyard. He comes upon his people in power by the spirit to strengthen them, to prepare them to what? To go out and what is like Paul, what does Paul do? He goes to the synagogues first. Jesus, for a generation, attempts to save the very people that killed him. I I find that difficult. I find that difficult to accept. I'll be honest. Because he ought to just smite them. Right? Why? Why would he save those people? Because, (laughs) thank God, he is not you or I. Because that's how gracious he is. And, and, And we misunderstand this whole section of the Olivet Discourse and what's really being told. We misunderstand the Sermon on Pentecost because what's really being described to us is the most patient, long suffering, kind and compassionate God 
that is almost beyond anything we can really comprehend. The people who nailed him to a tree, he's trying to save them, and he does it by sending out his people. And what did, right? He sends out his children to go and to preach the good news, and what happens to some of them? What happens to Stephen? And, and I think, well, come on. Why, why would you sacrifice Stephen? Why, why, would you make, why would you put him through that instead of just smiting these people? Right? And, and then I'm sitting outside of the city of Nineveh under a bush, angry like Jonah. What are you doing saving these people? Are you out of your mind? He's like, funny, I've, I've been through this story before. Right? This is my servants are always unhappy about my kindness to others. <clears throat> oh, hey, thanks, man. I have, a, I have a little bit of a cold. <clears throat> the contemporary dime store interpretation of Pillars of Smoke. Let's talk about that for a moment. Right, let's talk about how far off the grid we've gone with our interpretations. Because generally when people say pillars of smoke, what they mean are, right, everyone in the 19, 1950s suddenly understood what Mark meant. And they're like, oh my gosh, look at the cloud that's left over from a nuclear bomb. They're like, look at the clouds of heaven. And that must be what he means, right? Jesus is going to ride in <laughs> on the apocalypse riding an intercontinental ballistic missile. I love that phrase, by the way. That, that is the coolest name for a weapon ever. Right? Because if, if China were to shoot a missile at us, for a time it would look like a falling star. Right? Right before, apparently, <laughs> Christ comes to meet me on the giant cloud that is left in his way. Another interpretation is, you know, if you ever look up into the skies, you will actually from time to time see stars moving in a straight line. I was fascinated by this as a kid. I, I developed quite the wrong explanation for this for a long time before I asked an adult. But then uh, 10 minutes later, you'll see the same little star. That's because it's a satellite, apparently, because they go in the same path. So I actually read that the stars falling out of the skies were because, like, you know, the world's coming to an end and the electricity stops working. I don't know how that would affect satellites. But then they start falling out of the skies. And I was like, I like the, the intercontinental ballistic missile more. I'll say that phrase as much as I can. But coming in pillars of, of, of smoke is... Again, something that is very common for Jesus and, and for God the Father. This is, what it, this is how you refer to his approach. Psalm 104.3, <clears throat> God lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Isaiah 19.1, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Nahum, that's one of those little books that we mostly forget about. But chapter 1, verse 3, The Lord is slow to anger, indeed, great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds of the dust of his feet. Right? And what, what led Israel in the desert? It was a pillar of fire by night and a what? A pillar of cloud by day. And so Jesus is, in fact, coming in the clouds because he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is Yahweh. 
Now, later on, Jesus is asked at his trial, and this is what he says in Mark 14, 62. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Obviously, Jesus is not referring to some distant and future event. He was speaking of something his contemporaries, the present generation, would see. The Bible describes exactly when Jesus came on the clouds, at least one of the times he came on the clouds. If we take Acts, the beginning of Acts and the end of Mark, we put them together, this is what we get. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. That generation would see him riding on a cloud, ascending into the heavens. And the book of Revelation talks about what what happens in heaven when when the Lamb comes. Because he's triumphant now. He accomplished what the Father had sent him to do. He has taken up everything he laid down. And not only that, we read from Philippians that now he has a name higher than any other name to which everyone shall cry out to and everyone bow down to in the the days to come. Jesus said who he was, and they didn't believe him, and now he's showing them he is, and he's using the language that, that they are very familiar with from the Old Testament that always describes God's presence. <coughs> now, sending out his angels, what does that mean? What does it mean that he's going to send his angels out and gather the people from the four corners? Well, this is one of those instances where people develop theology in school. And then later in life, they're hired to interpret Bibles. And so they take their theology with them to the text, and then right, there are certain words, and they understand that this is about the destruction of the whole world and not just the end of Jerusalem. And so they start interpreting things uh, consistently with their theology. We have to always remember that the Bibles that we have are, in fact, interpretations done by men who have a particular theology. Because the word angels in Greek is just messengers. It's just, that's all it is, is. A messenger came. And the context has to tell us, rather, what, what kind of messenger it is. Context always determines it. The word itself is interpreted as preachers of the gospel in Matthew chapter 11, Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 9, and Revelation chapters 1 through 3. Worldwide evangelism and conversion of the nations will follow the destruction of Israel. It will proceed and follow, right? Because what happens? Jesus puts out his spirit upon his children, and he sends them out, and the first thing we see Peter doing is what? Declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. And where do they go? They go all over the whole world. It says in Colossians, Paul, at the time, because to them the world was a lot smaller than it is to us, because they, right, travel was a little harder. At one point, Paul actually says, we've declared the gospel to all the nations. The angels, the messengers, went out and gathered the elect in. The church spreads and becomes, centered in Rome, the capital of a nearly global empire. And from there, they send out preachers of the gospel that, right, just in Rome, from Rome, right, all ro- roads lead to Rome. And from Rome, you could get to Ireland, you could get to Russia, you could get to Scotland. Jesus is quoting Moses, who promised in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 4, that if your outcasts are at the ends of heaven, from there the Lord your God will synagogue you, and from there he will take you. 
Now, this is very interesting, because did you hear what I said? He will gather you or synagogue you? Well, the word actually is synagogue you, which is strange to turn such a word into a verb. His use of the word gather is significant because literally the verb means to synagogue. The meaning is that with the destruction of the temple and of the old covenant system, the Lord sends out his messengers to gather his elect people into the new synagogue. This text has nothing to do with a rapture. Okay? I'll kick the rapture one more time. That is a false doctrine, nowhere found in the Bible, and it's not going to happen. But what God is going to do is he's going to send out preachers all over the world and gather in his elect. He's going to synagogue us. Now think about it. Do we all get up and travel several times a year down to the temple in Jerusalem? No. We are synagogued, aren't we? Because the synagogue is a small group of believers in a very local setting. And so he's talking about the kind of church he's going to have. It's not going to be focused and centralized. It's going to be decentralized. In Hebrews, Paul uses the same word. He explains that because the old covenant system was obsolete and ready to disappear in Hebrews 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 13, Paul urges the Christians to not forsake the synagoguing of themselves together. That word gather, gathering together. Because you are the synagogue of Jesus Christ, right? And then after this point, Paul and the rest of the apostles refer to the Jewish synagogues as synagogues of Satan. That sounds harsh, but it's true. right? Our Jewish brothers don't really like it when we refer to it as that. I wouldn't do that if I were you, unless you were really trying to start a fun, fun argument. But we now are the synagogue of Jesus Christ. We are gathered together in him. We are united to one another because we're united to him. Let's go back to Mark chapter 13, verses 28 through 31. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, there's quite a lot here. I tried to figure out how to condense it down into a little section, and I'm not that good. Not half that good. Because heaven and earth is made out of his words. That part I couldn't reconcile. I don't understand if his words outlast heaven and earth, but heaven and earth, I mean, anyway, it was very confusing to me. I tried to, I spent maybe a little too much time trying to figure that out. But he goes back to talking about fig trees. He goes back to talking about discerning the signs of the times, right? Because we all go outside and we look in the sky and most of us who have lived here our whole lives can tell whether it really is going to rain or not. I'm convinced I can smell it. May or may not be true. But when we go outside and we see, right, we we can tell, oh, it's really cold outside. You know how? Because I'm looking out the window and there's frost. And and Jesus wants them to be able to discern the Bible in exactly the same way, as simply and as straightforwardly as looking out the window and determining what the temperature is. Is it hot or cold? Is it summer or winter? The accent falls not on immediacy, but on proximity. The fig tree 
becomes green, one is not only certain that summer is coming, but that it is very, very close. The Mount of Olives was famous for fig trees. This is where he's sitting when he's having this conversation with them. Sometimes these um, fig trees grew to be 20 or 30 feet tall. Jesus gave his instruction just before the Passover when the fig tree would be in the condition described in the parable. He's being very, 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 very practical here. By calling the disciples to observe properly what was immediately at hand, Jesus reinforced his exhortation to observe what was happening in Jerusalem and Judea and to recognize its significance. Why is it that we can look out a window and we can tell when summer is coming, but we look at the news and we think the end of the world is coming? Right? We can discern the signs of nature, but we can't discern the signs on CNN. He's talking to a group of people who should be able to understand the things that he, are, he is saying, and, and what Jesus is still doing is talking to people who ought to be able to understand and don't. Because how many people read this and they look at the newspaper and they think, oh, the end of the world is coming. I'm asked, why do you have so many kids? Christians. It's like, you, you're just raising martyrs, you realize. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that, it's going to be your president one day. I'd be careful. <laughs> I actually have said that. Right? Because, right, my, my all... <laughs> The world that we live in now is not defined by fruitfulness. And, and the Christians, that we, the, God love them, they're our brothers and sisters, <clears throat> but they're confused because they can't look out the window and discern that God is in the heavens, that he is ruling and reigning. <clears throat> they don't understand how to interpret the, the times that they're in. And I have this conversation. I'm gonna, how is Christianity doing in the world? Do you know that Christianity is actually growing even in the United States? The Christianity that's shrinking is <clears throat> lame Christianity, weak Christianity. There are more martyrs in this last uh, century than in any other time in history. And then you get into other things. Like, the gospel is doing what? It's taking over the world and reversing the fall. And my proof is refrigeration. And, and you say that to me, and you're like, what are you talking about? I'm like... He's reversing death. Like, literally, I can kill a cow and, in a sense, keep it alive for three months before I want to eat it. Death has no power here. As long as I have electricity. And then if that goes out, I can buy a generator. And then, well, you know, for a while, though, they were smoking, and I guess I could just do that. So look at what, even technology, what's happening. Right? We, we had a big uh, deacons meeting yesterday, and Jared was here for it. Well, I thought he was in Hawaii. Exactly. I couldn't give him coffee. I really wanted to, but he looked like he was happy. <laughs> the world is not getting worse. It's not. But you live in a world that really, really, really wants you to believe that it is. We look out the window and we can't discern the times that we're living in. We can't discern where things are going. Things are not going to hell in a handbasket. They're not. Now, okay, you mean to tell me, Mike, that all this sexual confusion that's going on is a good thing and a blessing? No, that's absurd. And I just challenge everyone, especially who calls it neo-paganism, if you understood what actual paganism is, 
Like, do you know that 200 years ago there were people living right where we're sitting right now who used to eat people? I, I don't mean to offend any first peoples that are in the room. Okay? But Christianity and Western civilization coming to this area was a good thing. Because there used to be people living here who forget the salmon in the water, I'm going to eat people. And they roamed all over the land. And look at it now. And paganism from 700 years ago is not what I would call neo They're not the same thing. Okay? What is going on in the world outside of your house? Right, the win- the, right outside your window. Can you discern this, the signs of the times that you're in? Can you discern what this country needs? What does it need? Does it need a Pentecost or a Holocaust? Well, <laughs> I'd be very careful answering too quickly. But, right? Do we actually know what it needs? We think we know what it needs. But I would challenge us that we don't really know how to comprehend the times that we are in, the signs. I'm not going to make a judgment on this generation, the generation in which I'm living for 40 years, just like Jesus didn't. He's like, yeah, it's bad. I'm going to make a judgment. I'm going to say it's wicked and evil. And then I'm going to try really hard, send out my angels all over the earth, my messengers, to try to save them, even though they're the worst generation that ever lived on the face of the earth. Can you name a worse generation than the generation who said, kill God and put his blood on us? And there's Jesus like, you know what I'm going to do? You know, I'm not going to come just yet and visit them. First, I'm going to visit them through my children to try to convince them to come over to my side. Now, I'm going to terrify you for a moment. Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 36. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. (coughs) Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Does he say to this generation I say this? No. Does he say to the disciples I say this? No. He says, I say this to all. You don't know. You don't know when he's coming in a Holocaust. You don't know when he's coming in a Pentecost. And so stay awake. Are you awake? I understand woke Christianity is the thing at the moment, but they're all asleep. Okay, because the thing that God does not concern about is having the right ratio of black people in our church. He wants all the black people. People who want a ratio of the black people are people who don't know the first thing about the gospel. And I'm not as concerned about looking around here and making sure there's enough dark faces. Because in heaven, people from every tribe in the world will be there. I can't do what he can do. I can do what I can do. And that is, stay awake. He told a parable about the vineyard. He said, right, 
there, there, there is a vineyard and there is a master and he goes away and he put people in charge of it. That's you. And what happened to the old vineyard masters? Well, God would send messengers to them and they wouldn't be able to discern the messengers and so they killed them and refused to listen to them and including rejecting the son himself. Now, what happened to the old vineyard masters? Now, you're the vineyard masters. Can you tell the difference between a messenger of God and a messenger who isn't of God? Can you tell the difference when the sun visits us? Can you look out the window and tell what season it is? Can you look into events and know the difference between what we need is a Holocaust or a Pentecost? Who does know? Who does know? Who is the ark? Right? In the decreation, right, whether it's intercontinental ballistic missiles, I got to say it again, falling out of the sky, or Trump marching at the March of Life, which seemed to just confuse everybody. <laughs> right? we, we are not wise. God is wise. Right? We do not know, but he knows. We are not good, but he is good. And the key is to be as close to him as possible when either day comes. Whatever day it is, the key is to stay awake and to see what's coming and and see him, be close to him, Jesus Christ. Because if it is a Holocaust, he's the ark. And if it is a Pentecost, you want to be found doing the work that he wants you to do in this world while you have time to do it. I just read this. This is your worst life. You're living your worst life now. Mm, That's grim, right? Because your best life is still to come. And for people like us, I'm like, okay, yeah, it is our worst life. I'm with you on that. But stop and think about how good it is. I just mentioned refrigeration, for goodness sakes. I mean, think about it. I can literally buy 50 pounds of beef and just keep it there. As long as I don't go to Wichita like you guys did. Sorry, that was bad. Sometimes our freezers break. But we live in a world where Jared can meet with us from Hawaii. We live in a pretty awesome and pretty amazing world, in a world in where Jesus Christ is going out and, right, and he is taking it over. And it's still not as good as it's going to get. Right? Don't be satisfied with this world. Keep your mind on the world that's coming. Keep your mind on the one who is in heaven. Keep your mind on the one who has the power to bring either Pentecost or Holocaust. And as you're waiting for him, stay as near to him as possible. Stay awake. Observe. Pay attention. And praise him. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord God, that we would, in fact, be a people who are awake uh, people who learn from the scriptures, uh, the signs of our, uh, and, and learn to discern the times that we are in. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are, are at prayer and at work when the Lord comes. We know that you are here with us now, and we know that you uh, visit us at special times and in special ways. And we pray, Lord God, that in, in, in ordinary time or at special times, so whatever the circumstances we are in, that we would keep our hearts and minds on you, that we would keep pursuing you, and that we would draw as near to you as we can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.